Scripture this morning is John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They've got no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water so they are filled and fill them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, as the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. It's the word of the Lord. Well, it's wedding season. I I was uh, thinking yesterday... Of, I mean, I don't, I don't know anybody here who had a wedding or was at a wedding yesterday. You know that there'd be people who, who uh, looked at the last two months and sun, 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 and then uh, July wedding and rain while the whole rest of the city was celebrating. Uh, I don't know if you love going to weddings. Some probably. I don't know how many you get to go to. We've, I think most of us have had in our lives those seasons or the years where we seem to have weddings most weekends. Uh, I'm a minister, so that can uh, sometimes be the case, not always. I look at how many weddings I, I do in a year, like how many um, ceremonies I do in a year, and it can actually vary quite a bit. So there's times when you're like, oh, yes, another wedding, and, and you know, like that. And you always celebrate, but... Uh, uh, one of my favorite stories, and I won't tell you who, and it wasn't Ken. So there you go. Uh, a good friend of mine who's a minister um, forgot about a wedding he was supposed to do one time on a on a lovely Saturday afternoon in the summer. He had even done the rehearsal two days before. And, uh, and then he said he got home. He went to the fireworks here in town on a Saturday, took his kids who were younger, uh, and, uh, and then got home really late. Because uh, took the C bus home or something, and his and at the time his answering machine was just flashing like crazy, and there were all these messages from from the people saying, um, "Well, it's about half an hour before you said you'd be here, about 45 minutes before. Just checking in that everything's okay, and then the next one, and then the next one, and the next one. Um, it's like five minutes before the ceremony. Just checking. Um, you're you're probably on your way or something like that. And then um, uh, it's well past the time the ceremony's supposed to begin, and he just because this is now the confession time. It wasn't as special for him as for, as for the couple. Um, fortunately, there was a minister, who some of us know, in the crowd at the time, who literally grabbed his laptop and went up and performed the wedding ceremony, uh, who knew the, the pastor who was supposed to do it. So, I read an article recently that some people are saying they've had too much of things like weddings and bachelor parties or bachelorette parties. Can you believe such a possibility? 
uh, what they're saying is that bachelor parties and bachelorette parties are getting grander and grander. So they're not bachelorette parties anymore. They're bachelorette weekends. And a lot of people don't have that much money. And so it becomes something where the person getting married thinks, well, this is a real celebration because this is like, well, this is about me. <laughs> and so this is worthy of a real party, right? But the friend sometimes like, I can't dole out that much cash. And so there's a whole series of etiquette things now on how to say no. Uh, when I could probably go, but I can't afford it. Because uh, that can be offensive to some people. And wedding etiquette is something that is, you know, you have to think about today. And I'm thankful to think that all those years ago, in this text that we read, this is a text of wedding etiquette, both in terms of Jesus and his role as a guest at this celebration and in terms of the host of the wedding. In those days, and I won't go into a detailed kind of biblical history for you, but in those days, weddings were very elaborate. They were things that would take place not just over one day, but sometimes the wedding feast would be three, four, five days or more in length. And much of it would be paid for by the host uh, of the wedding banquet, and, but it would be an extensive period of time. All kinds of rules and etiquette, some quite a bit different than today, uh, but certainly elaborate. A time of great joy, and often they would be gatherings for the whole community. And certainly, and this is, this is where it is quite different than today, particularly in the West, particularly in Vancouver, and maybe particularly on the North Shore. Uh, brides and grooms tended to be younger in those days. And many of you who've been married for 25, 35, 40, 50 years are saying, not just in those days, but in my day, brides and grooms were younger too. Uh, most of the weddings I do now, people are in their 30s usually. But, in, you know, a couple generations ago, you'd be maybe young 20s. Is that correct? And back in Jesus' day, even potentially younger than that. And so it was a coming of age for the bride and the groom. And so there's a lot of stuff packed into this wedding celebration. And the text then opens with a disaster. This is worse than spilling the dinner on the floor, worse than getting invitation etiquette wrong. The party, and it was a party, rather early on ran out of wine. Not a good thing. A breach of etiquette an embarrassment to be sure. And Jesus' mother, and don't you like this about Jesus' mother, she wasn't the host of the banquet. She was just invited, as was Jesus. And the text before this are the calling of the first disciples. So you have this very important, what you would know is a very important occasion in gospel and biblical history, Jesus calling his first disciples. And then one of the, one of the Jesus calling his disciples, but one of the first places that they go after that, that's mentioned in the book of John, is to a wedding? And Jesus, at least in the text, if you listen to how Richard read it, and it's right there in the text, there seems to be some reluctance on Jesus' part, particularly at what is hoped of him. Uh, I don't know if there was a reluctance to attend the ceremony, but it does say that he and his disciples, his followers, went. And then this disaster, and then Jesus' mother, and aren't you glad that there's so many similarities between today and, uh, and back then. There would be very many people at a wedding today 
you know some of them, you might be related to some of them, who if they saw something go wrong, even if it wasn't their responsibility, they would take it as their responsibility to try to correct it. And that's Jesus' mother here. They run out of wine. She notices, probably before many other people notice. Not everybody would notice this at the same time, right? She notices before. And so she says to Jesus, they've run out of wine. Now, what do you think she was getting at in saying that? Just wanted to convey information. Jesus, maybe drink a little less because there's not much left. Obviously, her expectation here was that he could and would do something about it. Maybe get in his car and drive down to the liquor store and buy some. Obviously, more than that. That he had the power to change this situation. But not only the power, the will. Now, what this shows you about Jesus' mother and her um, view of Jesus Christ, her son, was that she didn't quite know what he was about at this point. Some of you moms with uh, grown children would say, well, I still don't really know what my son's about either. So you share that with Mary in this case. She knew there was something about Jesus that was noteworthy, that was special, obviously, more than that even. But she didn't quite know what that meant. And Jesus' response to her when she says they've run out of wine, he is able to pick up on all of this, that she has some kind of expectation of him, that he must have the power to do something about it. She might not know if he has the will, but he answers and says, seeming that he doesn't have the will, says, well, my hour has not yet come. It's a strange answer to they've run out of wine, and then you want this person to say something in response. A very strange answer is, my hour has not yet come. It's a form of saying, well, it's not about me. But it's even more than that. He does identify with some kind of mission and will, but it doesn't seem to be about the wine. But Mary is not, you know, she doesn't lose her will in any way at this answer. Again, fantastic uh, uh, character in this story as, as um, she demonstrates in her activity. When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, she doesn't say, listen, I think you can do something about it, and you should. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't even try to convince him. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he says. She assumes that he'll do something. And she assumes correctly. Jesus sees that nearby there are six large water jugs, 20 to 30 gallons each. That's a lot of water. It's way more wine. And Jesus says, let the Spirit speak to you here. Jesus says to the servants, the first thing, make sure they're full. So they do. Fill them up or right to the brim, Jesus says. Now bring them to the master of the banquet. You can imagine transporting these jugs. And he took some and tasted it. It wasn't water anymore. It was wine. It was the best wine he'd had. And he calls the groom, who would have some responsibility here, and says, everyone has good wine first and then the terrible wine later because that's when people are drunk. But you've brought out the best now. This, we're told, was a sign, one of the first through which the glory of Jesus was revealed. We're taking up this series called Encountering Jesus. Last week we looked at Nathaniel and the concept of skepticism. 
So I don't want to talk too much about miracles here and try to prove miracles to you. Because here's why. I can't. It's called a miracle. In other words, it's not supposed to happen and nobody can explain it. So you can say, well, I don't believe in miracles. And I would say, that's okay. You don't have to believe in miracles. But Scripture believes in miracles, Christian Scripture, and doesn't seek to explain them. One of the things to remember with miracles is that they mostly don't happen. Do you understand that? That's why they're called a miracle. Most of the time, it doesn't happen miraculously. They're exceptions to the normal way that things work. So this miracle of turning water into wine. This week, what we're doing is we're looking at, through this miracle, what we expect of Jesus. These questions are swirling around this story, particularly in his encounter with his mom. Expectations of who Jesus is and what he is about. Even his own mother is compelled by his power, but unsure of what to make of him. This is often referred to as the first miracle, and the text is referred to as the first sign of Jesus' glory. So these are the expectations that we would have of Jesus. Firstly, what is it, it should be kind of a question mark there, what is it that we can expect of Jesus? What has Jesus come to do? And secondly, we'll look at how has Jesus come to do that? Well, you could say in Scripture that what Jesus has come to do is to set things or put things right. In other words, things are not right, and Jesus will make them right. Things are not as they should be or as they are supposed to be, and Jesus will restore this order. But what exactly will he do in putting things right? Because as soon as I even say that, Jesus will put things right or make things right, we get into this terrible religious uh, thinking, which is that there are enemies that have to be dealt with. That, In other words, Jesus will come fight for our cause and deal with the baddies in some kind of way. That is not what Scripture means, particularly the New Testament, about putting things right. It will be much deeper than that, and it will have to do with our hearts. So we have the question of what will Jesus do? And then we have the question of how will Jesus do it? What kind of Messiah is he to be? Will he show up with this vengeance? Uh, will he take care of our enemies? Our society still loves these stories and still um, uh, still reacts to them. Uh, our family, we had a family movie night last night. It sounds like that's the kind of thing we do a lot. I think the last one was like six months ago. But anyway, that's pretty good for us. And uh, so we were all there. We had, we had, we had make-your-own-pizza, and we, and we decided to watch St. Vincent. I don't know if you've seen that movie, a Bill Murray movie. It's really good. But there's a little boy in it, and one of the things that this crusty old neighbor teaches him to do is fight because kids at school are picking on him. You've seen, if you haven't seen St. Vincent, you've seen this scene in tons of other movies. And the boy beats up his biggest, you know, bully. And even in me, I was like, way to go, right? We still love those stories. How will Jesus set things right? Well, this story will unlock some of this for us. And it will happen in unexpected ways. Ways that we're not used to. And getting to the what that I have on the screen there, you can see what I'm going to say that it is. I would like to point out that, it again, that it is something that Jesus went to this wedding in the first place. Jesus is not disconnected from the everyday aspects of your life. We, we can so often think of our religious or our spiritual life as kind of up here and everything else is, is kind of unholy. Um, 
That's not the reality of things. Jesus is present and interested in, this is, this is all through the New Testament, certainly through the Gospels, in the everyday aspects of your life, your work, your family, your hopes and fears. Jesus shows up at somebody's wedding. Didn't he have more important things to do? You know what the answer to that is? No. But look what happens at the wedding. He seems to be reluctant at first about his mom's request. But his first miracle, and note this, and please don't ever lose this in your Christian faith. Just use this as an answer to somebody who loves to tell you how bad things are all the time and how your behavior is questionable. Questionable behavior. What that means is, I, the person who says your behavior is questionable, they don't have any questions. They know. Right? Please note, Jesus' first miracle is to keep a party going. Just note that. Just hold that. I'm not saying that should give you the excuse for all kinds of craziness. I'm just saying Jesus' first miracle is to keep a party going. Glory, glory, hallelujah. And this, at this early point in Jesus' ministry, we're told that this is a sign. A sign that he has come to offer us, not just um, mindless partying, or not mindless partying at all, but that he has come to offer us and those who, those who have experienced mindless partying, I, the way, I always, experience, the way I, I always see it, when, know it when I see it, is kind of that woo-hoo-hoo where there's nothing to woo-hoo about. It's just woo-hoo-hoo, And you're like, what are you celebrating? Nothing. I'm drunk. It is awesome. Right? Though, that is not fullness of life. That's celebrating where there's not really anything to celebrate. And while it can be enjoyable in the moment, those who've experienced that over time know the great distinction between that and true fullness of life, which can include celebration and should include celebration. In fact, what Scripture is going to say, and the story points to it, is that we are made for fullness of life and joy. You are made for fullness of life and joy. That we would know in this life, in sickness or in health, joy. And Jesus' first miracle is a sign of it. He keeps the festival of joy going. Not only does he attend and reply to the invitation. I, I always I think about that. Now, this day we get the invitation in the mail and we email back or send the thing back and it's got a stamp on it so we don't have to pay anything. I think, how did Jesus tell them he was going? But anyway, somehow he replied. And when the party's threatened, he keeps it going. Jean Vanier, in his reflection on this text, has the simple point. He says, religion, true religion, true Christian faith is not dreary. Amen. I would add to that, just another way of saying the same thing. Dreariness is not virtue. Thanks be to God. Scripture promises fullness of joy. In God's presence is fullness of joy. That doesn't mean we, don't, we aren't called to take things seriously. I don't think we're supposed to take ourselves seriously. But there are things that are serious. But I, I always think in my life, I can tell when people take things actually seriously when they're able to see comedy in the midst of it. 
But anyways. This is not only true in the New Testament. Religion was not to be dreary in the Old Testament either. It's the same God. It's possible to take the Old Testament and misinterpret it to think that God is just a God of vengeance or anger or fear. This is not true. That's a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. And Jesus came simply to fulfill what the Old Testament was pointing to. Jesus became the fulfillment of that abundant life and that joy that all of the scripture had pointed to. And this is a promise for you. And if you haven't heard it enough, if you, if you don't think of it enough in your faith, this is a promise for you. Hear this, each one of you, that you would have a life of great joy. That's a Christian call. I did not say that there would be no pain or suffering or loss. I I don't know anybody who hasn't had pain or suffering or loss in their life. And by the way, it doesn't seem to be doled out fairly, does it? Some people seem to face much more than others. The promise of joy is not the promise that your life will be pain-free or sorrow-free or conflict-free. That's never promised. What is promised is joy. Another aspect of that in terms of the what is the abundance. Just as I said before, let the Spirit speak to you when you hear something like Jesus saying, pointing at those big 20 to 30 gallon jugs and saying, make sure they're full. No miracle has happened yet, or maybe it's happening right now. We don't know when's the line where that was water and now it's not water anymore. Was it right when they were filling it? Was it right... What was it? But he said, make sure they're full. It seems to be too much. But this is the exceeding goodness of God, the extravagant goodness of God. And as it stuns the master of the banquet, so it should consistently lead us to being absolutely flabbergasted. Dear Heavenly Father, How could you be this good? I've heard the prayers offered up from this congregation, that exact prayer. How could you be this good? How could the wine be this good? And how comes so much of it? It's not just Jesus, it's not at all Jesus showing off. It's a mark of the abundance of the life that is promised in Jesus Christ. I saw the most amazing thing yesterday. I was riding my bike. It was after I played pickleball with Dave, which was also amazing, by the way. I went for a bike ride. And on that bike ride, I saw the most incredible thing. i tell you what it is. I'd seen it before, but I hadn't noted how amazing it, it was. It was a puddle. Now, puddle's not amazing, is it? It was yesterday. All of a sudden, I was riding my bike through a little puddle. Actually, not that little, and I didn't avoid it. And I let the water splash up onto my legs, and I thought, that puddle was incredible. Because for two months, I haven't seen any. Do you get amazed at things like this? And I pray, 
Dear God, I went and I stood out in the rain yesterday on our back deck after the movie ended. I just stood out there and it wasn't raining quite hard enough to really feel like you were doing something crazy, but I stood out there in the rain and I prayed, thinking of that puddle as well. Dear God, how could you be this good? It felt like I could breathe again. I'd, I'd forgotten that I couldn't, but after all this barrenness, the abundance. I, I think, how long will it take in Vancouver until we start complaining about the rain again? I don't tend to complain about the rain, but don't, don't worry about it. I complain about a lot of other things. Um, but rain doesn't tend to be one of them because I like the rain. But maybe we won't complain about it again. Maybe. This is to be an abundant life. Vanier remarks, religion is not just serious business, doing good, learning theology, carrying out our duty, separating ourselves from greed. All of those things are religious practices. But the heart of religion, the religion of Jesus, is relationship, celebration, and communion of joy in love. Hear that. Communion of joy in love. When you have that kind of communion with someone else who believes in Jesus Christ, you know exactly what Vanier means. This is the heart of religion. Celebration and communion of joy in love. We human beings, Vanier says, are made for relationship, for celebration. This is the what that Jesus has come, that we might have life and have it to the full. He said as much. I have come that you might have life and that life to the full. The how is also in this story. And this is a little, I shouldn't say darker, but the joy part, you know, we all just, oh, it's so fantastic that he's come to give us fullness of life. But the story is not only easy. Jesus does have some reluctance that he expresses. At his mother's request, he says, my hour has not come. What did he mean at this point early in his ministry? Well, at this point early in his ministry, Jesus was already focused on his sacrifice and death. That is clear from his answer. I mean, you have to know the rest, much of the rest of the Gospels, but when you do, you know that when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, in his mind, what he's thinking about is not just a party, not just the people there and his love for them, not just keeping the party going, but what is most present in his mind is that he has come to give his life so that we can know fullness of joy. So there is that sense that he, he performs this miracle, everybody keeps partying, and he is kind of off going... But I know what's really happening. He's not dismissive of the celebration, but he's mindful of the coming sacrifice. He came that we might have life, but it is in the giving of his life that we find this fullness. In other words, the problem goes much deeper than lack of wine. The problem in the human condition is sin, our turning away from God. You have felt before, and you don't have to be in a woohoo moment to feel it, you have felt before what it's like to lose yourself in a party or a celebration and forget the responsibilities that are coming just, you know, the next day or two days later. You're not thinking about all of those things. Not thinking about getting back to real life and your responsibilities and anxieties. But what Jesus is doing here and what Jesus is feeling here that is evident and obvious is that there is something much 
greater going on than just the surface of that event. He sees in this answer, my hour has not come, the fundamental need of the human heart to be loved and accepted, to know this communion, but he knows that the problem in the human heart is sin, self-focus. When we think of the problems in the world, this is, say this over and over again, we can think of other people. At your work, I mean, what would make your place of work better? Almost guarantee you, it's if somebody else straightened themselves out. You know it. Now, I know that's what people think in a church, too. This church would be better just if such and such did such and such. Often that's directed at the pastor. We've got a pretty healthy church in that regard, but still, of course I know. If only this. The church would be better if this. Your family would be better. What would make your family better? Almost guarantee you, if your spouse or your child or your parent was just a little bit or a lot different than they are now. All that does is point to the fundamental problem of the human heart. The heart is wicked, deceitful above all things. We tell ourselves that the problem in the world is other people. But really, when we face our deepest points of crisis, I know this, and I think that you do, it's when we even begin to let that truth in that the problem is not the other person. Oh, dear God, the problem is me. Now what do I do? Well, there can be great hope for change and growth. But who's going to deal with this problem of my heart? The good thing is that that sin is not the end of the story. And where religion of any kind, and particularly Christian religion, uh, becomes stressing the bad things about us, that sinfulness that we all have, it's in, in some ways focusing on the secondary thing. Sin is never the main story in Christian faith. Sin is never the main story in Christian faith. Sin is never the main story in Christian faith. The main story in Christian faith is the forgiving, compassionate love of Jesus Christ. You don't start with sin. You don't say, oh, I'm a terrible sinner, so I turn to Jesus. You start with the fact that Jesus came with a message of hope and joy for the world. Then, as we see his love, we can now, in safety, Except that we are sinful. But if you start with a sin, of course, well, then religion becomes a dreary thing. Tim Keller, a minister in New York City, some of you have read uh, Keller's books, and uh, he's, he absolutely loves C.S. Lewis. And one of C.S. Lewis's friends and contemporaries was J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. Uh, and so many of you, thanks to Peter Jackson, know those stories. Um, uh, just bathed in Christian imagery and references those books. There's one scene that when Keller's thinking about this text, he uh, mentions, he mentions two writers, and I'll mention them both, but I'm stealing it from Keller. Uh, one is Tolkien when he puts in the, wor- in, in the mouth of Samwise Gamgee, who's one of the hobbits, who's these little, you know, nothing characters are going to save the world, basically. And all kinds of things happen, as you know, in the story. All kinds of moments of terrible threat and then rescue. And at one point, Samwise Gamgee is rescued and he sees Gandalf, the the wizard, alive. And he's overcome. And he says to, to Gandalf, he says, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. And then he says this. 
Is everything sad going to come untrue? You don't think Tolkien was thinking of faith when he put that, wrote that? Eschatology. Eschatology means end times, the end of all things. Eschatology, by the way, is more than like, you know, what day will Jesus come and who's the Antichrist and all this fearful stuff. Eschatology, truly understood, is the completion of all things, that all things are reconciled in Jesus Christ. This is an eschatological statement or question, and you know what Tolkien was thinking when he wrote it. Is everything sad going to come untrue? It's a Christian question and sentiment. In the end of all history, the culmination of history in the Bible is a wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, this Jesus himself, this party, and the church depicted as the bride, the bride of Christ being brought together, all history coming together. Keller also quotes a Russian novelist, not quite as upbeat as Tolkien, though there's lots of darkness in Tolkien's writing, but Russian novelists are famous for it. I mean, they're experts in the darkness, but in the life as well. Dostoevsky, in one of his most famous novels, has a character uh, speaking similar things, but speaks instead of this, is everything sad going to come untrue? The way Dostoevsky mentions it is that this character describes a moment of eternal harmony. And if you know uh, Russian novels at all, particularly Dostoevsky, you know that most of it is like heavy and weighty and dark and painful and so depressingly human. But then one of these characters describes a moment of eternal harmony. Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts. That's the Christian message. It will suffice for all hearts. The comforting, this is Dostoevsky still, the comforting of resentments, the atonements of all of the crimes of humanity. The how is Jesus giving his life over all the pain and sin that ever was. Keller, when he's talking about this wedding feast, quotes an old sermon that he remembers from a pastor that, I don't know if he knew this pastor or just read this sermon. But I'll, I'll read it out for you maybe a couple times. It's a little bit wordy, but it's a good picture He says, Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today, you and I who believe, can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, and he was the one who kept that feast going. He sat amidst the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, knowing his sacrifice, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, not being immune to it, not being dismissive of it, but we can sit amidst all this world's sorrow, even our own, sipping the coming joy. Would you pray to encounter Jesus Christ in such a way? to put your faith in him, to know the abundant life that he has for you, to respond, to seek to live your life in light of what he has done for you and for this whole world. You have been promised in Jesus Christ a life of joy. And I tell you, you can know that life 
trusting in him. Let's pray. Oh, that's time right there. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us. Uh, I, I would pray, Heavenly Father, that my words and descriptions would not limit um, our own imagination guided by the Holy Spirit of this story. Give us insight that you would have us know. Open this story to us and us to this story. Help us to see that we are never bigger than the Word. The Word is is so much more than something we apply to our lives. It is in you, life itself. So would we come to life in the hearing of this story? And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that on that day, at that wedding that you went to, uh, you performed this miracle. And may we know that you have called us to a life of joy. And may we know what it means that you have given your life for the life of the world. We thank you for this abundant life. We thank you for your willingness to go to the cross. And uh, we put our trust in you. Many of us here can say that we have prayed that before. We put our trust in you. We pray for those who may have never prayed it, but would. Lord Jesus, show me what it means to put my trust in you. And uh, may... Maybe it's most of us in this room who have prayed that prayer. May we know what it means each day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.